Pastor and author Charles Swindoll once said, the devil, darkness, and death may swagger and boast. The pangs of life will sting for a while longer, but don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He is risen. This is the day each year when Christians focus on the resurrection of the Christ more than any other day. We talk about it. We celebrate it. Hopefully we tell others about it. Of course, that's how it should be. It's what Jesus commanded us to do before he ascended to heaven. But you understand the resurrection of the Christ is actually more than just an event that we commemorate from the past. Right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is also a present reality that we live in every day as Christians, which means it is the gospel, the true story about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. It's that gospel, not, not a virus, not economic hardship or political turmoil or, or social unrest or any other uncertainty in this life that is our source of confidence for today and our hope for tomorrow. Because at the very center of that gospel is the victory of life over death itself. Jesus' atoning death on the cross that paid for our sins and his resurrection three days later, which validated that work on the cross, proving that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. That he'd done what he said he would do, conquering death and the grave. And so for the Christian, that victory of life over death, look, that is our reality, our present reality. And so again, the gospel is not just a story that happened a long time ago that we believe in. It's also an ongoing story that we're currently living in as it continues to unfold in us, in our daily lives, informing every aspect of how we live from day to day. Because the lives of everyone who belong to him, including all those who ever will belong to him in the future, our lives are a vital part of that story. That's our reality far more than any temporary affliction in this life. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality that he secured an eternal victory over death, that reality should permeate every aspect of our lives, far more than anything else. And so our faith in Jesus, our hope in the future, our purpose for living the way that we do as Christians, look, all of that is inextricably linked to the resurrection. It's tied to the resurrection because look, if, if Jesus didn't pass from death to life, then neither did we. So it's, impo it's important we get this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story we believe in. It is a reality we're living in. It has to be. Otherwise, we're not following Jesus Christ. We're simply following a religion, just like all of the other religions where people follow the teachings of religious leaders who died and stayed dead. On the contrary, as Christians, we aren't following a religion. We're following a person. And yet, if that person is dead, just like the rest of the religious leaders throughout history, then all we're actually doing is fooling ourselves and wasting each other's time. That's why we take the time that we do each year to focus on this one part of the gospel story, the resurrection, because without it, we're all wasting our time. Without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. And Jesus' teachings simply become the ramblings of a religious lunatic, and the church becomes a colossal waste of energy and human resources. By the way, 
People who say that Jesus was a good teacher but not the Son of God have, have I just had this conversation with a guy a couple weeks ago. Look, they've either never actually read the Bible, if you believe that, that he was just some kind of good moral teacher but not the Son of God. You've either not read the Bible or you're simply not being intellectually honest because all you have to do is read the red letters in the, in the New Testament. Just the bits where Jesus was actually talking and it doesn't take long at all to figure out that he was either the son of the living God or he was completely crazy. You, you cannot make an intelligent, coherent argument based on biblical scripture that Jesus was something in between those two extremes. It's one or the other. And so for those of us who believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do, look, every single aspect of our lives is affected by and informed by and shaped by the resurrection. It has to be. Think about it this way. We just talked about this a few weeks ago, so some of you will remember it, but it bears repeating, and it's, I can't come up with a better analogy than this. If your best friend or your spouse died, right, and you went to the funeral or the graveside service, you watched them being lowered into the ground and buried in a casket, then three days later, you decide to go and visit that gravesite to pay your respects to your best friend or your spouse, Except when you get there, you find that the gravesite has been dug up and it's empty. Imagine the utter despair, the, the hurt, the confusion, the devastation that you would feel looking at that empty grave where your loved one or your spouse once laid. I mean, you're walking back home, completely bewildered, devastated by this unlikely turn of events. And then all of a sudden your best friend or your spouse walks up beside you full of life and in perfect health. Without question, that one event would define every single day of the rest of your life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen, right? You would never try to distance yourself from that reality. It wouldn't even matter to you that it made some people uncomfortable every time you talked about it. I'm telling you, you wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believed it to be true because you would know that it was the truth and that's the only thing that would matter to you. That your loved one or your spouse was dead and now they're alive. I mean, the reality of that, that, that they came back to life three days later, that event would shape every single day of the rest of your life, no matter what anyone else ever thought. It wouldn't matter. Now look, for the Christian, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should shape every single day of our lives. We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We, we should never distance ourselves from that reality, even if it makes some people uncomfortable every time we talk about it. Because it's not just a story that we believe in. It's the reality that we're living in, the single most important reality of them all. The fact that the same Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago is in fact alive today. Now look, if that's not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. But if it is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity of false is of no importance. And if true of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Which of course begs the question, why then are there so many professing Christians 
moderately committed to Christ, right? Well, maybe it's because we've believed the story of the resurrection without allowing the reality of it to actually shape and inform our lives, to change the way we see God and the way we see ourselves in light of his plan for this world and how we fit into that plan. Because once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is actually trying to speak to you every day of your life, that he's trying to lead you where you need to go every day of your life, that he's trying to give you what you need to accomplish his will for you every day of your life, once you reckon with the reality that he is in fact alive and constantly, unceasingly active in your life on your behalf, you begin to listen for and pay attention to his voice. You begin to follow his leading and you begin to receive all that he has for you. Then everything about how you live your life, it changes dramatically. In fact, it, it has to. It's exactly what happened in the lives of his first disciples. Once they reckoned with the reality of the resurrection, everything about how they were living changed. In fact, the difference in their lives before and after the resurrection changed the world. But that means living in the reality of it, not just believing in it. Right? The reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well today, which of course also separates him from every other religious leader or teacher the world has ever known. Because unlike every other religious leader who has ever promised anything eternal to their followers, Jesus is the only one who got up out of his grave after three days and made good on every single promise. Now look, I know most of you here today probably believe that, which of course is important, but the question is, have you allowed the reality of his resurrection to invade your very life, your thoughts and your dreams and your plans and your purpose, your choices, your questions, your fears, your everyday life? And if not, well, then maybe it's time you had a new revelation of the risen Christ. Because I'm telling you, once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is alive and active in your life today, you begin to listen to his voice and follow his leading and receive the gifts that he's trying to give you and everything, everything changes. Again, that's what we see with his disciples. Look, they knew Jesus' story better than anyone, right? I mean, they lived it firsthand. They certainly believed in him. And yet the moment he was accused and then crucified, what'd they do? They ran away as fast as they could from any association they had with him. Even though he told them numerous times that he would be killed and rise from the dead after three days. We see that in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 34. And yet even after finding his tomb empty, they were still running and hiding. It wasn't until after he revealed himself to them that the reality of his resurrection truly set in, which is when every aspect of their lives changed profoundly to the point that their lives after the resurrection were completely unrecognizable in comparison to their lives before the resurrection. So we're gonna walk through this story together today from his death to his resurrection, and I want us to pay attention as we go to how the reality of who he was and what he did and the fact that he came back from the dead, how that utterly changed everything about the way his disciples lived their lives then and how it should utterly change the way that we live our lives today. So let's pick the story up at John chapter 18. This is as Jesus and his disciples are making their way by foot 
from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria and Bethany and Bethpage, they have shared their final meal together. And they're now about to cross the Kidron Valley from the great city itself as the masses of people were flocking to Jerusalem to share the Passover meal. So Jesus and his disciples are retreating from the city to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, uh, we'll begin by reading the first two verses. So John chapter 18, one and two. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples leave the city to head out to the garden where they would often meet to rest and pray. And if you pay attention to the details given by John here, even this short journey to the garden by Jesus and his disciples is heavy with prophetic significance. It demonstrates actually powerfully the intention of Jesus to fulfill his calling, knowing well and good the cost to him personally and what he was about to do. John says they crossed the brook Kidron. If you read that in the ancient Greek, the brook Kidron is described as a kimaros in the Arabic. It's called a wadi, which is a storm runlet. It's a dry gulch that only had water in it, like a runoff during the rainy season. So it was a, this dry creek bed, right, that acted as a storm runoff through the Kidron Valley, which Jesus and his disciples had to cross to get to the garden. But this was the afternoon before the Passover, which was when the priests would sacrifice the lambs on the altar of the temple. And the historical records that we have from Jesus' day tell us that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain by hundreds of priests. And so there were drains at the altar areas that would carry the massive quantities of blood from a quarter of a million lambs, along with the water they used for ritual cleansings, down from the city into the otherwise dry brook of Kidron. In fact, the word Kidron itself means black brook or gloomy brook because of its crimson-stained banks from the blood that flooded it every year. So just picture this. Jesus and his disciples make their way to the garden. With his death on a Roman cross being imminent, they first had to cross the brook Kidron, which was flowing to its banks with blood and water. And of course, in John 19, 34, at Jesus' crucifixion, John says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The prophetic overtones are astounding, which was certainly not lost in the moment on Jesus. In fact, if you look through chapter 12 of this gospel, just read the red letters. Just read what Jesus said in that one chapter. It becomes undeniably clear that he knew exactly what was coming. And the truth is, it's hard to imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling as he crossed over that brook as the blood and water from those sacrificial lambs flowed through the valley knowing where God's plan for him was about to lead him. Yet Jesus never rejected the Father's plan for his life even knowing what he was walking into. The 19th century English preacher Octavius Winslow said it this way, he said, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Think about that. Jesus created the tree that the cross he would be crucified on was made of. And he created and nurtured the lives of the men who would nail him to it. What does that say about how much he loves you? That he not only knew what was coming, 
but he made certain it came to pass down to the last detail. Okay, Jesus embraced the reality of his death, and so must we, and yet we, we, we much prefer to think about and talk about the other parts of the gospel, don't we? The ones that don't require nearly as much from us, right? The love of Christ is easy to talk about. The fact that he ate with sinners is easy to talk about. The fact that he fed hungry people is easy to talk about. His willingness and desire to accept the outcasts of society is easy to talk about. We love to talk about all of those aspects of the gospel, as we should. And of course, those parts of the gospel are also popular themes in our culture, which is why they're easy for us to talk about. But when you start talking about the fact that Jesus was mercilessly and brutally tortured, mocked, beaten, crucified, because of you and me, because of our sin, to make atonement for our sin, well, that gets a little uncomfortable. And we don't like uncomfortable, so we shy away from talking about the difficult parts of the gospel, but listen, we have to embrace the reality of the crucifixion if we're going to live in the reality of the resurrection. Because first of all, there's no resurrection without a crucifixion. And secondly, there's no need for either if we are not desperately in need of a savior because of our sin. That's why those early disciples always told the whole story. And so must we. Right? In Matthew's account of Jesus' trial and execution, he says in chapter 27, verse 26, that Jesus was scourged just before being uh, crucified. Roman flogging or scourging was a horrific, uh, it was a cruel punishment where those condemned were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal. It would tear through the skin and tissue, often exposing bones and even at times intestines. In fact, in many cases, the flogging itself was fatal before they ever got to the crucifixion. And in this case, the Romans made certain to scourge Jesus nearly to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown because Jewish custom dictated that crucified bodies had to be taken down before evening, especially before the Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday. So they wanted to make sure Jesus was dead. Yet as, as horrible as it is to have to contemplate all that he went through for us, every single step of the process was a fulfillment of what was prophesied about him in various scriptures throughout the Old and in New Testament scriptures leading up to these events. In other words, this is what he came to do for you and for me. In fact, if you keep reading in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, he describes how the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus down, put a scarlet robe on his body, and pushed a crown of thorns into his scalp. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 27, 29 through 31, Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at this point in history were well known for playing cruel, sadistic games with condemned uh, prisoners. They would often dress them in a wild costumes. They even had a huge game board. They would place the prisoners on and use them as game pieces as they would play these sick games to degrade and punish those who were condemned to die. And all the while, Jesus, who at any moment could have commanded legions of angels to come and snuff the life out of every one of those who opposed him, instead freely allowed them to torture him ruthlessly. 
because he knew that he could not avoid that part of what he'd come to do for us. And neither can we. We cannot glaze over the hard truth about his death. A death that only happened because of our sin. And we cannot ignore the part of his plan for our lives that requires us to die to ourselves. Okay, we must embrace this aspect of the gospel because listen, if people do not understand the wages of their sin, they will never understand their need for a savior. You cannot lead people into a true understanding of the gospel by only talking about the love of Jesus for this world. That's a great place to start, but at some point we have to confront the reality of his horrific death because of our own sin and then our own subsequent need to die to ourselves, to repent of that sin and to live for him instead of living for ourselves. That may not be a popular message. In fact, it never has been but it is a reality that we must embrace. Let's keep reading John 18, verses three through nine. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Go am he. In the Greek, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was spoken to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. So Judas gathers a band of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and Pharisees as well. Again, in the original Greek language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira, which constituted a Roman cohort or a thousand men, although in practice, the Roman cohort was typically between six and 700 men. But when you add in the, the temple police with those Roman soldiers, it's estimated there was probably a thousand soldiers there with lanterns, torches, and weapons sent out to capture one man. Now hearing this story as a kid growing up, I always pictured about 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. When looking at the flannel graph in Sunday school, there's like a handful of guys there, soldiers, right? When you see the, the productions in church, there's a handful of soldiers there coming to arrest him. Can you imagine the sight and sound of this mass of soldiers, a thousand strong with torches and lanterns, the metal of their swords and armor clanging together as they approach the garden that evening, a thousand strong? Must have been a terrifying sight. Part of the reason they sent so many after Jesus, by the way, is because they weren't just concerned about Jesus and the, the disciples at this point. He'd become very popular with the masses of people, so there was fear of an uprising upon his arrest. So sending out a thousand soldiers would much better prepare the authorities for any potential mob violence, which was always a concern for the Romans during the Passover when according to uh, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, first century Jewish scholar, over 2,700,000 people crowded into the city. So a thousand battle-hardened soldiers come seeking to arrest Jesus. And Jesus steps forward and asks them, whom do you seek? 
And when they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds with the very same words given to Moses by God in Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked the Lord who he should tell the Israelites it was who'd sent him. In the ancient Greek, it's the words ego emi. It literally means I am. And the moment Jesus speaks those words, revealing his true identity, a thousand battle-hardened soldiers with their lanterns and torches and weapons and armor fall to the ground. What a sight that must have been. We can't imagine it. It's no wonder that just a few moments later, Peter has the courage to lunge forward into the horde of soldiers and cut the ear off of one of the men. Again, growing up, I used to wonder how Peter could be so courageous in the face of all these soldiers when just moments later in the face of a servant girl in the courtyard, he denies even knowing Jesus three times out of fear for his own life. That never made any sense to me. But it makes perfect sense now when you understand what was happening, you see, all throughout Scripture, the book of Ezekiel, Daniel, Acts, Revelation, when God revealed himself to people, they fell over. In Revelation 1.17, describing the divine revelation of Christ to him on the island of Patmos, John wrote, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Okay, when Jesus reveals himself to these soldiers, they collapse to the ground. And if Jesus simply speaking his own name, can knock a thousand hardened soldiers onto their backs. Peter must have felt invincible at that moment. And what a moment it was. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of the thousand soldiers. He wasn't afraid of their swords or their torches or their armor. He wasn't afraid of anything that men could ever do to him because he knew who he was. Jesus embraced the reality of his identity And so must we. Yet again, it's easy for us to tell other people about his likable qualities, right? About his popular character traits, even about his stand against the broken religious system of the day. We love to talk about all of that. But listen, Jesus isn't just a likable rebel who bucked the system. No, he said of himself, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. I am the only way. He said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 9. The apostle Peter said, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. The apostle Paul said, there's one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. The New Testament writers cite messianic prophecies from the Old Testament more than 130 times. The Old Testament contains as many as 400 prophetic passages that describe who the Messiah is and what he will do for us. I mean, what are the chances, what are the odds of all those prophecies being fulfilled in one person? Right? The, the chances are so staggeringly remote, the possibility of it being a mere coincidence is a complete joke. It's absurd. Jesus alone is the Messiah, the one and only Son of God, the only way to the Father. He's the only truth, the only light, the only salvation, the only one able to conquer death and the grave. He's the only one who can give us new life. He's the only one who could atone for our sins, and he's the only one worthy of our devotion and worship. 
Is it good and right to tell people about the true qualities of Jesus? Well, of course it is. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the true identity of Jesus because we're worried about sounding intolerant of other people's beliefs or religions. I told you this story before when I made a new friend, a Muslim man, who had asked me to meet with him once a week to help him with some issues he was dealing with in his professional and personal life. So we were meeting weekly. I'd only known him for a few months. At this point, we'd been meeting on a weekly basis and we would have these great conversations. We'd talk about religion, about life, about work. He would end every conversation with, this was a good conversation, I look forward to our next one. Wonderful man, I actually came to have a deep love for him and a concern for him. And the last time we met, he asked me a question about my faith, to which I replied, listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what I believe means everything. But if he's not who he says he is, then what I believe means nothing. Doesn't matter. And so he said, tell me about Jesus. And so I laid bare the gospel, my own desperate need for Christ in my life, the fact that I wouldn't make it through my own struggles or survive the effects of my own sin because Jesus is the only way to salvation from the wrath of God that we all deserve. Being the kind and gracious man that he was, he thanked me at the end of our meeting. He said, I enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking forward to our next one. Week later, he died. We dare not claim to love Jesus if we're not willing to tell people who he really is. Because any moment could be their last on this earth. Telling people the truth about who Jesus is, his true identity, even if it bothers them or hurts their feelings or makes them uncomfortable. Listen, that's a reality we have to embrace. Let's keep reading. We're going to skip down to chapter 19, halfway through verse 16, and then read through verse 19. This is after the torture and trial of Jesus, as the soldiers now take him out to be crucified. John says, so they took Jesus, and when he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, there they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now skip down to verses 28 and 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So even while dying an excruciating death, Jesus was still doing and saying everything required to fulfill the prophetic scriptures about himself, and in particular, he references Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, when in his final dying moments, he expresses his thirst, because again, Jesus understood that everything that was written about the coming of the Messiah was written about him, which is why he not only embraced the reality of his death and the reality of his true identity, but Jesus embraced the reality of his resurrection. 
And so must we. You understand, even while dying on a cross, Jesus never doubted his own resurrection. Matthew describes the scene in chapter 27. Just before Jesus gasps his last breath, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. It's Hebrew, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Matthew 27, 46. And I, I have to be honest with you, after everything that Jesus did, understanding who he was, and the fact that he was not only going to die for mankind, but understanding exactly why. And you know, of course, I talk about this every year at this, on this day because of its profound significance. Listen, I always thought it was a bit anticlimactic that the Son of God, who with all of his wisdom and all of his understanding, not just in general, but in that very situation, knowing exactly why he was there and what he was accomplishing by being there and knowing that he was going to rise from the dead. It always felt like a bit of a letdown to me that he would spend his final breath questioning the Father. You know, when you, when you think about people who are being executed and they're given a chance to offer their final words, at least from those who are in their right minds, you expect their deepest innermost thoughts. You expect them to muster up the most profound and meaningful statement they can possibly give in that one moment. I was just listening to several of them uh, recanted this week. It's interesting to read some of those statements that have been made by people who were about to be executed over the years because you know they've had a long time, most of them, to think about what was about to happen to them. And indeed, some of those final words are very compelling. They're very deep and thought-provoking, and some of them are quite profound. So I... I guess I always expected more of that from Jesus, who had plenty of time to think about what he would say in that moment. He knew why he was there, and he knew that he was going to rise from the dead. Yet what I would read in Matthew always seemed like more of a really sad expression of confused bewilderment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so for most of my life in church, I heard it explained that because Jesus was shouldering the sin of the world that in some way in that moment he had to be cut off from fellowship with the Father and he couldn't fathom that so he questioned the Father in that final moment of his life on earth. Again, just to be honest, that, that always left me with a bit of a sense of defeat really. Even though I knew that Jesus rose from the dead later and conquered sin and death. That moment of triumph over the grave at Jesus' last gasp always felt like a bit of a defeat to me as Jesus himself questions the Father's absence in that moment. And that's what I believed for most of my life. But the truth is, listen, there's so much more to what was actually happening in that moment than Jesus simply being bewildered by the Father, turning away from sin. In fact, what was really happening was not at all what I thought or what I was taught, which at best is an incomplete picture and quite honestly a total misunderstanding possibly of that passage. You see, in the first century, the scripture that people knew and had was of course predominantly Old Testament scripture. And, and some of the most commonly quoted and well-known passages of scripture at that time were the Psalms, which of course are songs, right? The word Psalm means hymn. These were songs that were sung and taught and quoted by God's people all of the time. It was a part of their life, a regular part of their life. If you think about a really famous song in our lifetime, a song that everyone would know really well, you can simply hear the first line of that song and nothing else, right? And immediately, you know what that song is. You know what it's about. You know the message of that song. You know how it makes you feel. 
just by hearing the first line of that song because you know it. Right? If most of you are probably not old enough to remember, some of you are the old show, Name That Tune. You grew up watching that, right? Where they would play the first line of a song and the person listening would have to guess the name of that song. And the more well-known the song, the easier it was to name that song. That's how music works in general. The more you hear it, the more it stays with you to the point that just hearing the first line of a song can instantly recall the entire piece and what the whole song is about. Right, so if you, for instance, if you hear someone saying, oh, say can you see right? Just by hearing that first line of that song, you know what the song is. You know what it's all about. You may even begin to feel the emotions that it stirs up inside of you and the grateful sense of awe and wonder for the victories won and the privilege of living in such an amazing country. I guarantee you our military guys can. And all of that from hearing the first line of one song. And the reason that matters is because Psalm 22 is one of those songs. One of the songs that was taught in Jesus' day. It's a well-known song that starts out as a great lament about suffering that happens to end in great victory over one's enemies. In fact, Psalm 22 was known as a song about victory even in the worst of circumstances when it seems the whole world is against you Psalm 22 was the ultimate cry of victory over the enemy and again this song of victory was taught over and over again it was well known at the time that Jesus was hanging there on the cross in fact we've already seen John point out that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 22:15 in his great thirst just before dying what do you think was on his mind Now look, if you read the beginning of Psalm 22, the very first line of that song says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you getting the picture? As Jesus was dying on that cross, he wasn't using his final breath to express some kind of doubt or defeat or bewilderment with the Father, not at all. You see, as he felt his life slipping away with one final breath in his lungs, he cries out the first line of one of the greatest songs about victory over our enemy that had ever been written. Jesus was quoting a very familiar line to a very familiar song. He was making a statement to the world in that moment, both to those there that day witnessing his death and to everyone after who would ever read Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion, that in that moment, in the worst circumstances that anyone could ever fathom having to face, Jesus was claiming victory for all who would ever call upon his name forever. And then seconds later, That victory was won. Can you feel the gravity? The difference in that passage in Matthew now from what seemed to be a sad statement of defeat to what is actually the greatest victory cry in the history of humankind. Because Jesus knew what he'd come to do. He knew who he was. And he knew where he was going to end up. And so even in his dying, he was living in the reality of his resurrection. And so there on the cross, with his final breath, he put an exclamation point on his coming resurrection by claiming victory over death. 
And then as we move to chapter 20, we see his resurrection become a reality to those who loved him the most. Let's read the first 16 verses together. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the, in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai. Jesus was alive. But how? They saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw his tomb. Yet there he was alive as ever as the reality of that resurrection began to make its impact, beginning with Mary and then the other disciples. Look, it defined every single day of the rest of their lives from that moment on. Everything changed. I mean, how else could it be? They could no longer hide the reality of who he was and what he'd done for them. They could no longer hold back from telling his story to anyone and everyone who would listen, even when that meant making people uncomfortable, even when that meant persecution, even when that meant suffering and death. Because the reality of his resurrection fundamentally changed the reality of their own lives to the point that every one of them devoted every day of the rest of their lives to boldly proclaiming what they knew to be true because they'd witnessed it firsthand. Now look, if, this, if none of this is true, maybe you could see one or two of those guys losing their minds over the whole ordeal Right, If Jesus had not actually risen from the grave, maybe one or two could have just gone crazy and decided to start a new religion based on a lie. But all of them telling the exact same story the rest of their lives, even when it meant torture and death. No way. Chuck Colson, he's now passed away. He served as special counsel to President Nixon from 1969 to 1973. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man, and as many of you know, he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal, and ultimately he pled guilty to obstruction of justice for his part in that political scandal. He served seven months in federal prison. Later, he became an outspoken Christian, and, and there was a radical life change there that he ended up founding a ministry called Prison Fellowship and then Prison Fellowship International. Uh, he taught and trained people how to focus on a Christian worldview 
right, in their lives. He also went on to author more than 30 books. The ones I've read are outstanding. The point being, Colson was a man who knew what it meant to be radically transformed by the truth of the gospel. This is what Colson had to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm quoting. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just a story that we believe in. It's a reality we're living in and it should therefore define and dramatically transform every aspect of who we are and how we live our lives today, just like it did for those 12 men in the Bible. But imagine if after seeing Jesus alive, after touching him, after talking with him, after walking with him, after eating with him, imagine if after all that, when those disciples were around other people, they pretended that none of it was true that they didn't know anything about it, right? Because they didn't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. or They didn't want the reality of it to disrupt their own comfortable lives, so they lived as if it never happened. Come on, that would be unthinkable, right? It's like us seeing our best friend or our spouse alive and well after being dead for three days and then speaking with them and touching them and eating with them and living with them. But when other people were around, we pretended like none of it really happened. That would be unthinkable. Because the fact that this person was dead and is now alive would become your new reality, one that would shape every single day of the rest of your life. That's exactly what happened with his disciples then, and that's exactly how it should be with his disciples now. So just ask yourself, is the resurrection just a story that I believe in? Or is it in fact the reality that I'm actually living in day by day? Am I actively listening to his voice in my life every day? Am I literally following him, going where he leads me every day? Am I receiving what he's offering me every day or am I just living day by day under my own steam, by my own ability? Because I'm telling you, if his resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive and active in your life, always speaking and always leading and always giving, if that reality is not continually shaping your life each day, well then maybe it's time you had a new revelation of the risen Christ. Because it's not just a story that you believe in. It is a reality that he's inviting you to live in. Let's pray.